Romans 5, we will begin with the 12th verse. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more uh, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that One man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Father, as we read through this, we are conscious, I am especially conscious, of our need for your precious Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Will you cause him to work in our hearts for understanding, but but for faith, for belief, for trust. We ask for this not because we somehow deserve it, but we ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, for those of you that fill out the outline, I hope you were impressed by the creativity of my outline this week. Pastoral staff was giving me a hard time this morning about that as we went to prayer. 
And I said, you know what, I've, because uh, we started on this passage, if you remember, for those of you visiting with us, we've, we, we worked on this passage two weeks ago, last week we had our anniversary Sunday, and I, I told you we were going to take the big view picture a couple weeks ago, and then we would work through it verse by verse this week, and I, I just told them that's the best I could do. Now, um, I know I've been <clears throat> in some ways maybe a, a bit of a whiner about how much is in this book and uh, of, of Romans and the commentaries that have been written, but just so you know, I'm not, I'm not just whining about this. Uh, I wanted to show you something. Uh, this, this commentary is by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and this is just one of many that I use after I try to figure out what the Scripture's saying there and work up my outline and everything. Then I start looking at what the commentators uh, say, and... Uh, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is uh, the one that I told you spent 13 years preaching through Romans. And just so you really, really believe what I'm saying, this uh, commentary is uh, just on chapter 5. There are 26 sermons that he did on chapter 5. So, um, you see my dilemma. I hope you can see my dilemma. Uh, I, I could easily stay in Romans the rest of my ministry and not begin to get to the bottom of it. And so, that was part of what I've been kind of working through in terms of approaching Romans is we're going to keep moving, but I would never tell you that, I mean, uh, that, that we're going to exhaust it or anything like that. In fact, when we do finish Romans, we could turn around and start it again and go right through it again and uh, be able to uh, hit... Uh, more and more in-depth truth from God. So let's do, though, let, we're going to look at this uh, verse by verse uh, today. And on the city, which is our communication device last Wednesday, uh, I put the question out there, what is the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father? What is the greatest unkindness you can do to Him? So if you thought about it, or if you didn't think about it and you're thinking about it now, what, you know, it, do you think of a, maybe it's a particular sin or a particular sin at a particular time? Surely that must be the greatest sorrow or burden that we can put on the Father. And I'm going to address this later, but I want you to think about that even as we're working our way through uh, these verses in this really amazing passage from the Word of God. Uh, look at verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
uh, two weeks ago, we talked from this passage about uh, the doctrine of federal headship or federalism. And uh, what that is, is how one efficiently represents many. And that seems to be the way God works. Now, we talked about uh, Adam and we talked about Christ. But if you look all the way through the Scripture, we see God working that way. We see him uh, having uh, priests. We see him having prophets who represent their people. We see how there are ways the father in a household represents his family. And so this seems to be the way God works, and that's, that's his prerogative. And we talked uh, also about some of the potential objections to that, especially when we think about Adam, how, well, some might say, well, that's not fair. You know, if we all sin because Adam sinned, and that made us sinners, you know, I didn't get to choose my representative. How is that fair to me? And, of course, the implication, there's at least a couple of implications. One would be, you know, if I'd been there in the garden, I would have made a better choice. Or, um, he, he wasn't a good representative. You know, he was set up for failure. And that's certainly not the case. In fact, he was the absolute best representative. Perhaps, and of course, Christ is the representative of his people, but, but Adam was the only one in history, the, the one representative that ever perfectly represented those that he was representing. And the reason is because God didn't just choose Adam, he created Adam to represent us. And so he's absolutely uh, our best representative. That's why we're guilty, though. And remember this, this we, I said this two weeks ago, but I want to bring us back to this. Because when Adam sinned, we all sinned, we need to understand that we're not sinners because we have sinned. We sin because we are sinners. Get it? We're not sinners because we have sinned. But our very nature is that of sin, and that's why we will choose to sin. Uh, verse 13 and 14 are kind of a parenthesis here, uh, explaining Paul's previous uh, phrase where it says, because all sinned. Verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. We're going to see some verses where it almost looks like he's contradicting himself right within the same uh, verse, and that's, we'll, we'll try to work our way through that. 
But a lot of times people tend to think that the law began when it was given to Moses on, uh, on, on the tablets. So, you know, there was no law, and then, you know, for all that time, up till Moses, and then at, at Sinai, God gave the Ten Commandments, and that's the first appearance of the law. Some people uh, feel like that's the case. Paul clarifies. He challenges that. Um, here again, Paul's reasoning. Back in Romans chapter 2, Paul talked about how even those without the law have a law written on their hearts. So, before it was ever written down, there was a law. He's saying the law was in existence before it was given. Otherwise, there would have been no sin back then. If there wasn't any kind of law, any kind of standard, then those people wouldn't have been guilty of sin. But he says, but sin is not counted where there is no law. That's kind of how he's using that reasoning. He's not saying there's no sin because he just said there is. He's saying it's not as explicit or as clear before the law was given. Uh, on Friday, Connie and I went over to Atlanta to see our, uh, our, our grandchildren. They were all kind of from various parts of the country gathering there, so it was like a magnet. We had to go over there. And on Friday afternoon, uh, we got to see our two oldest granddaughters that are, are taking violin uh, in a group in the afternoon. And it meets at a church. And this church very graciously, uh, you know, has that group there. And, and I appreciate churches like that. We're like that. We like to have our church buildings used. Well, uh, so they have these kids, uh, and they're basically confined to several hallways and so on where they're playing their instruments and singing and things like that. The, the ministry uh, is called Joyful Noise, and, uh, you know, from, from the Scripture and so on. Well, so we're leaving and... Uh, going out the door, and you, you can look over and you can see where the sanctuary is. And there's a sign that says, <clears throat> Sanctuary. And underneath it, on the door, it says, No joyful noise beyond this point. Now, I, I hope the sign's not still up there today, uh, and, and I get it. You know, we all get it. We know what they were saying. Uh, it, it, it struck me as, as funny, but why, why is that sign there? Well, the sign's there because uh, probably uh, at some point, even though it, it was understood, you just stay in your area and so on, some of the little joyful noisers thought, let's go explore the sanctuary and climb the pipes and things, you know, things like that. And so they had to put up the sign. Why? It made it explicit. And they understood the sign uh, that they were therefore not to go 
beyond those doors. That's what we have with the law. It, it was there. It was, people understood it because God said it was written on their hearts. But then it became explicit with, uh, when the Ten Commandments were given. Verse 14, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Paul first makes it clear that there uh, was sin between Adam and Moses, and that's why there was death. Then he talks about how Adam uh, was a type of Jesus. And when, when you talk about types in the Old Testament, what you're saying is it's something uh, here that's given that, that people can see and know about, but it foreshadows that which is to come. But it's not exactly that which is to come. It foreshadows it. And what we see with types is that uh, they, they have a, a portion that will teach you about that future. For instance, uh, we can say that uh, sacrifice pointed to Christ. But it wasn't a perfect depiction of Christ because the sacrifice of an animal and the shedding of blood and so on, it, it, re, re, it caused people to think forward of the Messiah. It causes us to be reminded as we go back and read the Old Testament. But we know that there, was, there were major differences because those sacrifices, no one was sufficient. It had to be repeated and uh, that ultimately it was, they were imperfect, and that's why Christ needed to come. And so likewise, when we're talking about Adam, uh, we're not saying that he's the perfect de depiction of Christ, certainly uh, in that. So the emphasis is that uh, no one has an excuse if death reigned between Adam and Moses before the law was explicitly given to Moses. Uh, so no one was excused because the law was on their hearts. Verse 15, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the, and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Now, in, in the next five verses... Paul is giving five contrasts between the first Adam and the second Adam. Between Adam, who was a type of Christ, and Christ himself. <clears throat> and what we're going to see is, at every point, Christ is superior. He was absolutely necessary if we are to have salvation. And that's why... That's why this is all important for us to understand that, you know, God didn't leave us with Adam as our representative that brought sin into the world and brought condemnation. He didn't leave us there, but instead, he sent a perfect sacrifice later on that would take care of that which Adam was an unable to. The free gift is not like the trespass. 
the nature of uh, this representation, they're parallel, but there are big contrasts. The actions of Adam ruined mankind. The actions of Jesus restored his people. And then he goes on with further contrast, verse 16. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So he's saying that the power of what, uh, what these two did was different. One sin brought, brought condemnation on himself and on all of those he represented. And yet the gift and the work of Jesus covers the many sins and brings justification, which we've talked about uh, earlier. It brings salvation. Verse 17, then, for if, because of one man's trespass, remember, these are contrasting, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. First Adam brought death. Second Adam, Jesus brings life. 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, Let's clarify here. It sounds like Paul is saying that these are perfectly parallel. Through Adam, the whole world was condemned. Through Christ, the whole world is saved. Be careful here. I will say this. That if this were the only verse in the whole Bible, I don't know any other conclusion you could draw or if it was the only verse in Romans. But what we have to do when we come to uh, difficult verses like this is you look at the immediate context, the larger context, and you work your way out to the full context, including all of Scripture. So we need to understand that, and, and when we understand the full context, we understand that Paul has been clear. And the whole Bible has been clear that not everyone is saved. Not everyone will be saved. Verse 19, somewhat parallel, but it's also clarifying. Look at, look at what it says. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So, what have we learned in our context? Well, what we've learned is, who are these many who will receive this justification? Those who are trusting in Christ alone for their eternal life. That's who the many are in this. Let me give a summary. Adam, we have Adam in the garden in his disobedience. What did he do? Well, he, he grasped for equality with God, didn't he? He and Eve wanted, you know, the, 
the evil one, the serpent, <clears throat> said, go ahead, this will make you like God. You'll know what he knows. And so they grasp for equality with God. That's the one, Adam. And then you fast forward and you see Christ and the contrast between him and Christ where in Philippians 2, it says Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't have to reach out for that because he already had it. And so what did he do? He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see the difference between the first Adam and the second Adam? That which uh, Jesus gives us, that which the, the first Adam never had. And that's the contrast. So the results, at every point, the work of Christ is greater than the work of Adam. What Christ gained for us as his people was greater than even the condemnation that Adam brought upon his people. So at each point we see the effect of Christ being our federal head, our representative, as infinitely better than Adam being our federal head. In verse 20, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Hear that. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law was not given in order to make us do right. It actually doesn't make us do right. What it does is it points out that we are doing wrong. That's what the law does. It ushers us into that, that understanding. But by understanding that we are doing wrong, that moves us toward our deep need for Christ. Because this law is never going to save us. All it does is help us know how condemned we are. How lost we are. And so that's what I want to bring us in our application. We need, we must examine our own lostness. Let me ask a question. What's the most horrible sin that you can think of? I don't want you to dwell on it. Try to just answer that question. The most horrible sin you can think of. If you thought of someone else's sin, 
or a sin that you're not tempted by, then you've missed the point of how lost you are. Isn't that the temptation, though? How awful that sin is over there? Instead of recognizing how deep our own sin is. Jack Miller used to say we are far more sinful and therefore lost than we ever imagined. Far more sinful than we ever imagined. If we don't understand how lost we are, then we will never appreciate how great our salvation is. We will trivialize the work of Jesus on the cross. We will think, uh, yes, I'm thankful I'm saved, but, but you know, I never did anything that bad even before I was saved. And when we begin to think that way, the evil one loves that because we are minimizing the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We might be tempted to think, well, if, if so-and-so is saved, uh, who's really a sinner, wow, what a great Savior Jesus had to be for her or for him. But if we don't realize how lost we are, how deep our sin is, how hopeless of an estate we were in without Christ, then we will not fully experience the joy of our salvation. But if our lostness is all we focus on, it'll drive us into despair. Or it might drive us into uh, denial about our own sin. Or it will crush us. And in that we won't experience the joy of our salvation or progress in the Christian life. So you've got to have another truth along with that. That first it's true that we're far more sinful and therefore lost than we ever imagined. But the other truth is this. We are far more loved and accepted than we could ever dare hope. And that's the glory of the gospel. We're far more loved and accepted than we could ever dare to hope. So back to the question that I shared on the city and in our introduction today. What is the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him? I've shared this before with you. That statement is from Puritan John Owen's communion with God. And he answers that. I love this. He says, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, 
the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. Our greatest unkindness is not, not sin in and of itself. Jesus took care of that on the cross. And so the greatest unkindness is to look at the cross and know what was done there for us and not to believe how much he loves us. Because he does. Let's bow together. Lord, we have sung of the power of the cross, how Christ became sin for us and bore our wrath, and how we stand forgiven at the cross. Will you enable us to grasp that? We could never understand the fullness of that. But to grasp it to the degree that it will drive us to worship you with more joy, to love you more deeply and know how loved we are and to serve you better. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.